You're listening to the Redemption Church Podcast with Pastor Daniel Williams as we go through a series called God Redeems, a study through the book of Exodus. All right, turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 26. We will read that text of what we just saw in the video, but I do think that visually seeing it, it helps. I don't know if you ever read a lot of scripture sometimes and you just get lost. And you're like, wait, this measurement, we talked a little bit about that. But um, I think studying scripture is important. And what we're seeing through the tabernacle in our study together is we look at the, uh, the tabernacle, the sanctuary, God's dwelling place with his people, is that all scripture points to Jesus. All scripture points to Jesus. Um, and God wants us to study, to ponder, to dig in, to just meditate on his word and apply it to our lives. And if you notice, there's this pattern. It's saying, do this, do this, do this, do this. It's so strategic, so intentional. Exodus 25, 40 says that Moses was to make this or them, all these furnishings, after a pattern that God gave him. God was giving Moses this scripture, this word, and the New Testament writers in Hebrew gives commentary in the Old Testament. In Hebrews 8.5, it actually says that um, they serve as a copy or shadow of the heavenly things, it says. That's what Scripture gives commentary on Scripture. And it says, For Moses was about to erect uh, the tent and was instructed by God. And we're calling this the tent of meeting place, Scripture calls it, because a tabernacle had an outer court and an inner court. And this is describing that inner court. Uh, And there's so much symbolism, beautiful pictures as we study through the tabernacle because, well, God is a genius. I don't know if you know that. It's amazing, okay? And it's like he literally, with Hebrews, gives you permission, me especially as a teacher, to just linger and go off on all these cool things that you see, not only of who the tabernacle uh, at the time is, but how it points to Jesus, how it represents him, how it's the, the heavenly places, things like cool things, like how it's a perfect cube. And in heaven, it's like a cube. And there's all these different things you can sort of geek out on. And so we're taking our time and doing such that. We are just praising God for how he is speaking to us because there is great benefit in studying the Old Testament and the New Testament. And when you do this, when you see God speak from Moses to talk about Jesus, but also in history and something, our, our, our hope that we have in the future, you just really see the sovereignty of God. Like how he really, really does work throughout history and outside of time. And hundreds of years later, he could still use something like this, a text about literally curtains and coverings and minister to us today. I'm always reminded of this from the prophet Isaiah. We have this on the screen, Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. It says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no, there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient time things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. Did you know when God wrote Scripture, there was a purpose for it? This is in the Torah. This is giving his people a covenant and a promise and article uh, ordinances and, and um, law. And yet he has this way to profoundly throughout history give an unfolding mystery of his glory and beauty through the text. And he's able to like, say this will happen and then guess what? It happens. And this is all for good reason. Romans 15.4 says it's written for our encouragement and our hope that we may stand strong and have faith in him. 
So God's presence, it doesn't dwell in a tabernacle anymore. No, Scripture says that every follower of Jesus, because our sins are forgiven, the Holy Spirit, God Himself now, gives us His Spirit and dwells with us. What an incredible gift. But yet as we study about the tabernacle and this tent of meeting, we see God's glory and how specifically He instructed Moses, not just for the Israelites, but how it applies to us today. And so, God wants to teach us His heavenly and, be- heavenly and beautiful things about Himself even through curtains, coverings, or you could even say pipe and drape. You're welcome, Brian. Part two, curtains and coverings. Let's pray and let's get right into it. Jesus, we thank you so much for how you minister and speak to us. Holy Spirit, we need, your teach. We need you to teach the great teacher, the great comforter, the great instructor and empowerer. Point us to Jesus. Soften our hearts. May we fall more in love with you. May you pour your love upon our hearts. Father, we thank you for being a God of love and sending your Son to demonstrate that love for us. And may we see your Son through this text and through the tabernacle. We don't need to stretch. We don't even need to defend who you are. You declare it. So we don't need to over-exaggerate or anything like that. It's right here, and you reveal this to us because you want us to know you. Help us to know you more and honor these people's faith as we've come to listen, to hear, and be instructed by you, God. So we thank you, and we pray that you be glorified as we gather and as we continue to worship you, but now through the study of your word and with our minds. It's in your name we pray, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. I'm going to say this verse three times orally and not on the screen. Psalm 96, verse 6. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. I want to give us a mindset and a mind frame. We're going into holy things in the tabernacle, the sanctuary. And we're in a section in Exodus where Moses is receiving instructions to build this holy place. That's what sanctuary means. The dwelling place of God, creator of everything, is going to now be with his people. A tent of meeting, and he will meet with Moses. Exodus 25, verse 8, God says, And let them make me a sanctuary or a holy place that I may dwell in their midst. And God wanted to be his people and to dwell with them. And so he gives this instructions to Moses. Now, we've given you handouts. I don't know if we have any more in the back, but there's this symbolism and this Huge handout, but I have a picture for you because, again, it's a lot, right? Uh, This is something by, uh, there's a lot of things online. You can get it. We just bought, I think, 40 of them and gave them out as we started tackling and studying through the tabernacle. This is by Rose Publishing, and they even have a bigger book that I've been looking at. Uh, But I think visually it helps us to understand that this is an actual place. It's an actual structure. uh, And what the scripture we're talking about and studying through is this tabernacle our dwelling place of God in the holy place and most holy place and this is what it sort of looks like visually now this tent of meeting this sanctuary that Moses is being instructed of would be 30 cubics by 10 cubics one cubic is about a a foot and a half so measurements all you great mathematics out there 45 by 15 45 by 15 okay and Hebrews gives us 
um, the sanctuary sort of text in, in two sections. Hebrews 9 verses 2 through 5 has running commentary of this text, and it talks about how there's a holy place in this tent of meeting. That is two-thirds of this tent. Two-thirds of this tent, 30 by 15. Uh, in this holy place, there was furnishings of a gold lampstand, which we studied in chapter 25. There was the altar of incense and the table of bread of presence. But there was a, a section in this tent of meeting, not just holy, but the most holy. The most holy place or the holy of holies. It was one-third, and it was 15 feet by 15 feet. And in that holy, most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence dwelt and manifested. And so there was two sections in this tent, a third and two-thirds, and what separated was a huge veil in between. And last week we talked about that in verses 1 through 14, how there was these craftsmen and people that had this skill to make these beautiful veils with cherubim and all these pretty cool uh, colors and things like that. Hebrews 9, 6 through 7 uh, says that there were priests that would go into the sanctuary regularly to perform rituals with these things inside of it. But it was only once a year that the high priest or the leader of the leaders would go into the most holy place, the little section, the one-third section. One commentator said, but not without taking blood which he offered for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So the most holy place, as we look at this, I want you to understand your mind, it was a little mysterious going into it for the people. Yes, they had instructions, but the ritual and the practice of their faith in this sanctuary was a little mysterious because not everyone went in and it wasn't often. A lot of the priests went into the holy place, but not the most holy place. But when they went in, it was beautiful. It was full of gold, furnishings, and fine linen. And the curtains were to remind you of how heavenly God was. And His dwelling place was beautiful. Psalm 96.6, splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. And we looked at this beauty last week. But there were these beautiful colors in the sanctuary. There was gold and blue and purple and scarlet and even white. Are all of the major colors on these hangings and curtains and coverings of the tabernacle. And these bright and beautiful colors, well, they were to stand out on purpose in the midst of a very dirty brown desert wilderness journey. They were, they were to draw you in. The fine linen around the area, the outer court, not now necessarily the, the, little, the little tent of meeting, but the outer court, which we'll study later on as we get those instructions, well, that was like a white fence all around where the Israelites would actually camp out in the outer court. And it was to remind them of the holiness of God, how He was holy and set apart. And as you enter to the courtyard, there would be this 30-foot gate and the east end of the tabernacle and it was embroidered with blue and purple and scarlet against this white backdrop. Warren Wiersbe said about this and these colors and why people would choose these colors. For blue, blue is the color of the sky and it reminds us of heaven and the God of heaven. Purple, purple is a royal color that speaks of God as king. And scarlet, red, well, it makes us think of the sacrifice of blood and ultimately the sacrifice 
of the needed Savior and Messiah. You see, the holy place and the most holy place were now covered with four coverings. We looked at this last week. There was curtains. And although the outside looking at this tent wasn't as beautiful, the front was like a door. It was trying to invite you, trying to look to it because it had this fine linen, this screen on the front. And there was this gold lampstand that would only light up the tent of the tabernacle and it would shine light and gold would sparkle. And these beautiful colors, unique colors, this glory would be inside the tabernacle and the only way you get in the tabernacle was through the door. And we know biblically speaking, we looked at last week, Jesus is that door, the only way you get into heaven and the only way that you see the beauty of the Father. So it was a special, heavenly, beautiful place. And when, you mean, when I say holy, I just mean set apart. It's unique. God makes unique things. Just like you as a believer have the Spirit and God inside in you, and you are unique. You are special. Sometimes we don't look at it because we look at our skin and we look at our body. Everything's normal. But the reality is God knows your soul. He knows your uniqueness. He cares for you. He's making something beautiful on the inside and he sees it. And he wants other people to see it through the empowering of the Holy Spirit and to be displayed on this world. And he even gives us instructions to go and be holy as he is holy. And so he's declaring his beauty before Moses, build me something like this. Can you even imagine? What would that look like? That'd be crazy. How, how, how do I do this? Now, last week we covered this verse, Hebrews 12, 14. Hebrews 12, 14 says this, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And last week we really focused on the body of Christ and how these uh, class brought us together and, and did that. But I, I want to draw your attention to something a little bit different. Not just how we're to strive for peace with everyone and walk in unity, but it also says, and we're to strive for holiness. Holiness, because without it, people won't see the Lord. And this is what this beauty is supposed to remind you of. This is what our lives are supposed to remind people of. Our holiness, the beauty of God. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says our sanctification, our holiness is abstaining from sexual immorality. It's a part of God's will for our lives. As we live pure, righteous, holy lives, obeying Scripture with our bodies, you know, it's a gospel witness to the world. It's unique. Everything's brown around us, but yet we have this capacity to display the glory of God. At least I, I experienced this with my unbelieving friends when I was dating Laura and we were living in purity. Or even still, when we say, hey, we've been sexually pure. People, what? what? They don't understand. They don't realize that because the world has one way, but God has another way. You see, when God gives instructions to Moses, he's trying to display how beautiful and glorious he is. And when he gives us commandments to follow, it's not just for our good, but for his glory to display how beautiful and glorious he is to the world. And he does that with our tabernacle, with our body, to say don't walk in sexual morality. Live a holy life. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18-20. through 20. 
it says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin is a person, uh, a sin person commits is outside the body. But sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Can I just remind us today that it's a beautiful thing to walk in holiness. And like Titus, when we devote ourselves to good works and obeying God, it actually displays, and it's a beautiful invitation, like Jesus the being the door. He says, I'm the light of the world, you're the light of the world. We can actually give people a doorway to heaven as we actually say, God, on earth as it is in heaven, I'm going to obey your ways. This is what it looks like to follow you. And this is where God dwells. Jesus said this in John 14, 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. It honors God and pleases God when we love him and we walk in holiness and righteousness and obeying God's word and his instruction. You see, the sanctuary was holy and it was beautiful. That's where God dwelt. And when we keep our sanctuary, our body, holy, it's a beautiful thing. Don't get twisted. Don't get caught up. The world is telling us to be defiled, to walk in sin, to do all this different stuff. But there is a reason why we're to obey God. It blesses us and it blesses others. But tonight we see also that the sanctuary was not just beautiful, but it was strong. It was strong. And in verses 15 through 30, man, they describe the framing of this structure of the tabernacle. Because listen, without the structure, you can't have any curtains. You can't have any lintons hanging up. These coverings. The beautiful curtains and the coverings were there because there was a foundation and there was some things inside that held the beauty up. And what a great picture of our faith. Because without our inner, the inner faith of the Spirit of God, we aren't able to walk in holiness. You need the strength of the Spirit to walk in God's ways. You can't just walk in your flesh and do your own thing. No, you have a strong structure and a capacity to display through the power of the Spirit. Psalm 96.6, Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. When you want to display God's beauty to this earth and be a witness and light, you can actually ask God for strength. Strength and beauty are before Him. When we invite God into our lives, He uses weak people like us, and He says, I could be strong. We too often work just from the outside in. And did you notice, and last week I brought to your attention, how all these instructions are first from the inside, going all the way out. That's why next week, chapter 27, will be the out, outer court outer sanctuary, the tent. It's, it, well, God works from the inside out. And God wants for us to not neglect our inner strength and our soul and our spirit and to trust Him, to walk by faith. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7-8. through 8, Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, and it holds promise 
for the present life and also for the life to come. Pursuing godliness, character, and inner beauty and strength are an important part of our faith. They're an important part of our faith. The world would have you pursue other things, like your outer structure, but that's not the point of the tabernacle. It's what's happening inside. In fact, many of you all know this, Proverbs 31.30, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. I just, I just have to remind us, let's praise godly men and women that are, that are walking in God's ways, that are godly examples. Let's celebrate. Let, let's encourage godliness as a people, again, because the world is doing the exact opposite. And when we come here as God's people, we need to be reminded of the truth of what God cares about. The outside was for a purpose, but it wasn't the glory of the outside. The outer structures is decaying. Paul said, but man, I'm growing in the inside. I'm being strengthened, even though my body is perishing, my inner man is growing stronger and stronger. I know for many of us, especially getting up in our age, you know, now that I'm a 40-year-old, you know, I mean, you know, I never had a six-pack, probably never, now I never will. But God's not looking just at the outside. He's not looking at just what you can do for him. He cares about your soul and your spirit, and you can get stronger and stronger if you're here it's for a reason. I like this verse, 2 Timothy 2, 21 through 22. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, Paul tells Timothy and us, flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. It's not being legalist to say you shall obey Scripture. This is called worship. It's not wrong that Moses wants to get all this pattern, everything right, to actually teach the people how to worship. You remember they're a new nation. They have no idea even how to worship. They're in the midst of being formed by God, and you are in the midst of being formed by God as a sojourner in your faith in this life as well. Don't be afraid to read Scripture and be like, wow, I should apply this. I can't. Holy Spirit, will you strengthen me so I can give you beauty and honor and glory with my life? Can we just celebrate people like Lisa that are taking steps of faith, that want to be formed by God, that are just saying, I'm, I'm, I just want to follow you. I just want to bring you beauty. Like, This is all of us. We should be doing this as Christians. Well, I guess that was my introduction. So, (laughs) verses 15 through 30. Let's read that together. No, that's about half my message. But I wanted to frame it right because I think you'll see why. 15 through 30. You shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood, uh, acacia wood, And ten cubits shall be the length of a frame, and a cubic, and a half, and breadth of each frame. Now don't get lost in the instructions, but remember, this is from the Lord to Moses. There there shall be two tenons uh, in each frame. Those are like little things that join them together for fitting together. So shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make frames for the tabernacle, 20 frames for the south side, and 40 bases of silver. You shall make under the 20 frames. 
two bases under one frame, for it is two tenons, and two bases under the next frame, for it's two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, 20 frames again. Verse 21, and there 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame and two bases under the next frame. For the rear of the tabernacle, westward, you shall make six frames, and you shall make two frames for the corners of the tabernacle in the rear. They shall be separated beneath, uh, separate beneath, but joined at the top, at the first ring. Thus it shall be with both of them. They shall form the two corners, and there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases, two bases under one frame, and two bases under uh, another frame. Verse 26, you shall make bars of a K of wood, five frames, uh, five for the frames of one side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. The middle bar halfway up the frame shall run from end to end and you shall overlay the frames with gold and shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars and you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then they shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. Three things I want to bring to your attention in this text to highlight for you. The frames. And I think mentally that video we watched was really good because they're almost like boards, right? It was a board structure because it was a K of wood and then overlay with gold. So the frame section. Then there were silver bases and then there were the bars across these frames, or you may say poles. First, let's look at the frames, boards, the frames and the boards. Each board was about 15 feet high and two feet, three inches long. You know this because we know how long it was and how many sections, and when you do the math, it gives you the measurements. Now, there were 20 boards on one side, the north side, and 20 boards on the south side. The west side of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, had six boards and then two corner boards. So if you're following me, if you know, that's 48 boards, frames, in the entire tabernacle. Okay? The front part didn't have any wood because it actually had the screen of fine linen that they would make as an entrance. And these boards were connected together with tenons, sort of just like coming together in pieces. Uh, this was a solid structure that could be set up and torn down. The idea of this is it was portable. It was portable. And this was specific in understanding as we look at how this represents Jesus. Because we know these boards represent Jesus as we've done some biblical work. And uh, you should definitely check out the message Robin taught. It was so good when you think about the flesh of Christ being sort of temporal, but also the pure and, uh, of gold uh, representing just the eternity, God and man. Jesus, the Bible says, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, uh, the furnishing, the tabernacle, everything in it is pointing to him and represents him. And so when you see wood and gold, it's a picture of fully God and fully man. Something holy and pure, but yet something so with something so wood. And you see these things merging. Uh, to give you an example of this, John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt among us means he tabernacled with us. God's presence was actually among us. And this is a sign and this is a picture of Jesus, how he was portable, 
how he came to our neighborhood, how he was to be set up where the people were at. God in heaven, Philippians 2, said he left to come to us. And we're sojourning. We're going to get a new heavens and new earth. He did that in sacrifice to be with us and to dwell with us. And this is a beautiful picture. The boards were made with made to be with people. Because I don't know if you know how structures and building and weight and all that different stuff, but the tabernacle, if you do the math, this thing would be super heavy. Can you imagine them traveling even a mile trying to carry all of this in one structure or one piece? God made it manageable for them to carry the ark, the furnishings, all this different stuff with them on their journey. He didn't have to do that. The whole tabernacle was a piece to set to represent him, but yet he's breaking it down so the people can know. In God's wisdom, he broke down the pieces uh, that they would need so they can actually travel and so God's presence can travel with them. Just as God desires to be with us and journey in this life, Jesus came to be with us and walk with us, but he did something unfathomable and crazy. He became man. God becoming man, Christ Jesus, fully God, fully man. And Colossians 1.19 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's almost like he gave us this gift because we couldn't even comprehend. The Bible says if we see Jesus, now we see the Father. But we, we're so finite that we need, needed God to come down and to show us what true love is, to show us what true beauty is, to show us what truth is. And so he came down to us to dwell with us, a manageable peace, someone we can see and touch and feel and know and behold the glory of God. And the crazy thing is, if you think about it even so much, Jesus declares that the way that we would enter into the presence of God would be through his body. And he would want his disciples to remember it. This is my body broken for you. That you would have fellowship. They would beat and bruise and kill this body and torture this body. And Jesus would raise it up because death could not hold him. He was perfect. God knew what he was doing. 1 Peter 2.24 says that he, speaking of Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds we've been healed. So you have this frame You have this frame to display the glory of God. A lot of people don't even look at the frame or understand the frame or wasn't even about it, but it was to get to the Father. And Jesus put on this frame, this body, to have us get to the Father, to bear our sins. But then we also have this silver base, these silver bases. Now verse 21 and 25 sort of talk about this sort of in a mathematical way. There are 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame. Verse 25 says, And there shall be eight frames, and their bases of silver, 16 bases, two bases under one frame, and two bases under another frame. It's saying two bases of silver for one frame or one uh, board. So if we had 48 boards, 48 frames, 
If you do the math, times two, students, that's 96. Okay? 96 frames are bases for the frames. One commentator said this, each board rested on two sockets of silver, each socket made with one talent of silver. Therefore, each base rested on a base of 264 pounds of silver. That's heavy. Okay? And so you have these bases for this frame, and the foundation of the tabernacle was silver. Now, we've looked at gold and what that means, and we've looked at bronze. Bronze is on the all-outer court where God judges sin. Gold is pure, and it's king, and it's eternal. But why silver? Well, here's a cool thing. Silver in the Bible is the metal associated with redemption and payment for sin. Here's just a few verses from the Torah that God would speak to Moses at the time. Exodus 21, 32, we actually looked at this already, the uh, ordinances to God and his people. If an ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. Silver was the price to pay for the sin, but then there was also blood. Life for life, tooth for tooth. There's these rules, these ordinances. And a payment wouldn't just happen for an animal that sinned, but it was also for people as well. Leviticus chapter 5, verse 15. If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins intentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish of the flock. So a price, a life, blood had to be shed for sin, but there were also a price because it valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. Sin was the price to pay along with blood being shed for sin. We see this also in Leviticus chapter 27 as it talks about being brought to the sanctuary for redemption, that you would make something right or buy something back with blood being shed and giving of silver. Lastly, we looked at sort of a dowry from these ordinances, a payment to the father for his daughter. And we knew that this was an important thing as we studied it because part of the ordinances of Exodus, they, God wanted to value women and provide security for a woman so a new husband would, would bring value to the relationship and give the father a dowry, oftentimes silver, to be a part of the family and to part of that redemption. We see this actually in other characters, such as like Ruth and those type of things in study of Scripture. Now, a dowry wasn't always silver, but the payment of redemption always was. If a man were to dishonor that woman, he had to make it right. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 18 through 19, is an example of this with sexual morality. The elders of that city, if a man walked in that way, shall take that man and whip him. They shall fine him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel and shall be his wife. He may not divorce her all his days. Again, silver as a payment. Now what I love about this is how it points us to Jesus in the gospel. Your mind have probably already started turning and flipping if you know scripture when on the first verse I talked about 30 shekels of silver. As Jesus was betrayed, 
by Judas for 30 pieces of silver in Matthew 26, verse 15. Or maybe your mind started clicking when you heard part of the redemption, maybe if it wasn't shedding of blood by a ram or a life, would be a whipping. And you remember before Jesus got crucified, he was not only betrayed with 30 pieces of silver, but there was 39, or it was 40 less one, 39 whippings, lashes before the cross, Matthew 27, 26. And of course, it wasn't just silver or whippings that Jesus took on on his body, but what? His own blood was shed to make a right. You know, when we sin, we sin against God. And there was a price to pay and a debt to be paid. But without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And the forgiveness of sin that God promised and Jesus promised as you follow him would be atoned on the cross as the wrath of God would be poured out upon him who knew no sin for you and I. Ephesians 1.7 says this, In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You see, in God's wisdom, God made these practical laws for people of the day of how to interact. And yet somehow we see they also apply to Jesus in our salvation. The bases were silver. They weren't gold. They weren't bronze. This was for us to know that Christ's purpose was redemption. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to redeem us. But you couldn't have redemption throughout history at this time without the shedding of blood and silver and even beating. And what did he do on, the body, on his body? Two pieces of silver on the frame for every frame. The foundation of entering into God's presence through the tabernacle was only possible through the door who is Jesus and through the redemptive work that he could only do. We enter into a relationship and the presence of God with confidence, not because of our own ability, but it's by receiving God's work. The foundation of our faith is not built on us. It's built on the redemptive work of Christ and the foundation of the tabernacle was built on silver. It had nothing to do with the people. God instructed them to put this there. This work of Jesus is solid. It's a firm foundation. I like what Warren Wearsby said about this. God's sanctuary didn't rest on shifting sands of this world, but on the solid foundation of redemption. And it is this work that transforms our heart to want to obey Christ out of, his, out of love. David Guzik said this, The silver of redemption also separated the tabernacle from the dirt of the desert floor. This is an illustration of the truth that Jesus' redeeming work separates us from the world. These are beautiful pictures that we can just dive even deeper into. But we have one more thing to cover. The bars. The poles. It's all in the text. We saw it. But this is not only an novel portable thing of God's redeeming work, but it, it's a picture of strength. You see, the poles would be a type of reinforcement. If you know construction, there were these tenants, and the pieces came together, and they had a base. But then on the side of that, they would put these horizontal board, bars. Four across are poles, bars, however you want to say it, on each side linking all of this together. And one bar would actually be the middle bar. It wasn't even visible, but it ran through the entire thing. So there were five, five bars total, the text says. Now, David Guzik says about these bars, this speaks of both the visible and invisible unity among God's people. 
the system of linking bars was both visible and invisible. And we did look at that last week, speaking of which, how this applies to us, because if the tabernacle speaks of Jesus, it also speaks of us as Christians, because we are the body of Christ. And so we can actually draw conclusions and think about how cool this, how we're linked together by the class and all the different stuff. But let us not forget the side where these bars talk about Jesus. Because what are these poles made of? Wood and gold. It's giving you another clue or a cue to look for it. The foundation wasn't just built on the work of Jesus, a picture of silver, but the poles speak of Jesus' sustaining grace as a place to meet God the Father, the work of our salvation. This is what the bars represent as strength. Not just God redeems and now you do your own thing. The reinforcement of this whole body and this whole structure was Jesus. You know what the reinforcement and the strength of your walk with the Lord is? Himself. He sustains you. You don't have to just do it on your own. He is the reason, he builds it, and then he sustains it. It is Jesus who sustains and strengthens us. Just as poles will be a reinforcement to this structure, Jesus wants to continue to walk with you. As Colossians says, as you received him, so walk in him. Or Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 5, 10, 11. After you suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our Christian faith is strengthened as we continue to abide and rely on Jesus and his power. Not on our own ambitions or abilities, but on the Spirit of God. As he now rests in our we can rest in our salvation through Jesus. And the Bible says, Jesus himself in John 10, no one can snatch us out of the Father's hands. You don't have to worry about your salvation because it wasn't built on you. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began the work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. He's the one that saves you, and he's the one that sustains you. And you should be the one that praises him. You don't have to pay him back. This is who he is. He's telling Moses, this is how I want to be represented to the people. The, the presence of God and to get in, I'm the door. I'm going to sustain them. I'm going to dwell with them. I'm going to do all of this for you. And you know what, Jesus? He's a pretty good promise keeper. He even said he would die and rise again and it happened. So we could trust him. And we see in this last section two barriers, verses 31 to 37, the veil and the screen, that actually point to all of these things and remind us this is what it means. Now, verse 31 through 37, we'll read and finish with this. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. And it shall be with cherubim. Remember, that's that angel, angelic being, skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on the four pillars of acacia wood or acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold and with four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil with a clasp and bring the ark of the testimony in there with the veil, within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place for the most holy place. And you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. 
And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table, and you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework or skilled labor artists like that. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of Achaia, uh, Acadia, uh, not Acadia, Acacia, uh, and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be gold, and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. What I love about that screen, remember, everything on the outside is bronze because it's dealing with judgments you could enter in. It's amazing. Let's focus on this real quick because this last section is speaking of two barriers. The idea of the screen and the veil is to have the barriers between the outside and the inside, and it deals with fellowship. Now, the screen first, in verse 36 through 37, we've looked at this last week because it was a beautiful invitation. It was the beautiful part of the structure that you saw in the front, inviting you to come in, to be a part of the dwelling place. The idea was to get your attention in contrast to the desert floor, and there was four layers of curtains around the tabernacle, and this last part uh, translators don't really know, but it's sort of like an outer leather, like a goat skin or even like a, a manatee or sea cow, some translations say. But the idea was God wanted them to fellowship and go through the door and enter in. And so once the priest killed an animal and washed themselves outside with the, the altar in the basin or laver, they would enter into the, mo- the holy place and they would do this regularly and into this large section, the two-thirds of the holy place, and then there would be, uh, they would just take care of the lampstand, filling it with oil. They would, they would pour incense on the altar of incense, and they would regularly display the bread and put new bread on the table, on, on the table of bread. But there was another section, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place that the high priest would only go once a year. This is for a reason why I'm recapping and saying this. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was, God's dwelling place. What separated the priest from the most holy place was this veil, verses 31 through 35. The veil hung on four pillars of acacia wood by the means of hooks. The text tells us it was 15 feet high. And some Jewish traditions affirm that the veil of the temple, one commentary said, was about as thick as a man's hand. So that thick. It wasn't just a screen. There's a difference. There's a screen, and the screen was almost see-through, linen. It's inviting you in. Come. And priests would come, and they would be regularly in and out, in and out, in and out. But the most holy place was thick. You couldn't see through it. There was another barrier. And even in their rituals and their practice, a lot of priests didn't go, just the high priest in the dwelling place of God. It was beautiful like the screen. But rather than inviting, it had a different message. Be careful. Stay away. Stay away. In fact, the high priest, when he went in once a year, they actually tied bells to him and a rope because if he was unholy before God, God's presence would consume him and he would die. So if they didn't hear the bells, they didn't hear him move for a while, they would know something was wrong. And they would pull him in, not by going in the most holy place, but by a rope. So the other priest would have to pull him. Once a year, one man would go in and he would worry, am I going to make it? Do you understand? To get to God's presence in this moment, 
bury it. Would I even make it? Oh God, all the unhidden sin, the other things that I don't even know about. Please, 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 because now I'm going to have to go through this. I've been through the screen. I go like, that's great. That's good. But now when I go deep, when I go, am I clean enough? Am I perfect? Should I worry? If not, I'm about to die. That's the mindset. And here's the glorious good news of Jesus. He came preaching and promising that he would save sinners like you and me and forgive us of all of our sin so we can be in the presence of God. The most holy place. And Jesus, he has followers that do do his work. He calls us the royal priesthood. But he's not so concerned by what we do, more of who we are, and he desires fellowship. Too often times we think that Jesus just saved us for us to do this and do that and do this. That's two-thirds, and that is a big part of the walk with God is to follow him and to obey him. But the most precious thing about your relationship and the reason why the gospel is good news is because you get to enter in the presence of God and know him. Relational. And God works from the inside out. And out of meeting with God, God would have these priests do work on the outer courts. So God wanted to have fellowship with us, not just to work. He wanted to have a relationship, not just religion. And he wanted us to walk from a place of response, not just fear. That we would experience his presence and be so restored, so right with God, just as Moses met in the tent of the meeting with the Lord, he would glow and people would know that he was with him and it would change his life. So God, the Father, sent Jesus, the Son, to die for us, to be our redemption, so that we can have fellowship with God. And this is why from the cross, Jesus cried, to tell us die. It is finished. Now, John 19.30, he did that. And in that moment, the text says, the veil tore and was separated from top to bottom. As if God was tearing the biggest barrier and things screaming, do not come in my presence. It was like from the top to bottom, heaven coming to earth saying, you're welcome here. Be confident. You can have assurance. You can have your sins forgiven. You can now have the presence of God. And you don't have to fear because you are clean. You are pure. My sacrifice is enough. The veil was torn. Matthew 27, 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. All of heaven and earth in this moment would testify of this great assurance of our faith. The moment of creator was now giving his life for others. And this veil in the temple symbolizes free access to believers. Now we can go through Christ. Hebrews 6.19 says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul. Sure and steadfast. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. It is a confidence, not because of the work we've done. Man did not tear this veil from their own efforts from, t- from bottom to top. God did that work, and he did it perfectly through Jesus Christ. Because Hebrews tells us that Jesus, actually his picture 
of the veil was not just being being torn from heaven to earth, it was actually his body that was torn for you and I. Christ removed the necessity of separation between God and his people as well as the system of sacrifice and the law. The veil has been torn. So Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says this, and we'll close with this verse. Lord, if you want to come up, we'll take communion. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Your salvation rests on Christ, and you enter into his presence by the work that he did, and he said, when you gather together, now remember, you could know, and just as I promised to give you life and make you born again and have your sins forgiven, Take communion, partake in that, remembering that he will come again now. He promised it. We can have assurance, a living hope, that no matter what happens, even our suffering, it will pale in comparison to the glory that we have in Christ. And now he invites us by remembering, enjoy my presence for the work that I did. So let's pray, let's remember, let's understand and bless God that he is the only one that brings salvation and sustains us. And let's pray and thank him and participate in this beautiful act of communion. We'll have the elements in the back table, and as we sing this song, you stand up, you go, and you remember that it's Jesus. If you're in God, the Father's hand, no one will snatch you out of, your, out of His hand. Thank Him, praise Him, bless Him, and live for Him. Jesus, we thank You so much that we can look to You, that we can bless You. We thank You for this deep, rich truth found in a study of curtains of structures, of poles, of frames. God, but yet we know that you, through your word, give us this commentary, give us this picture in your great wisdom. I pray you continue to give us this great wisdom as we continue to look to you through not only just the tabernacle and this section of scripture, but all of scripture. Jesus, we thank you for being our confidence. We thank you, Lord, that we can look to you and you alone. We bless your name. We praise you. And may you continue to give us this insight of just who you are and how much you love us. Thank you, God, for dying for our sin. Thank you, God, for your salvation and forgiveness. Thank you, God, for placing your spirit inside of us and strengthening us. Would you continue to strengthen us? May we have our hope in you. May we have confidence in the work that you've done, Christ. Be glorified through our bodies. Empower us to live for you. Continue to do that work from the inside out. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. This is Pastor Daniel Williams with Redemption Church. Thank you so much for listening to this message. You can subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, Google Play, or YouTube, so you never miss a message. The mission of Redemption Church is to pursue and to proclaim Jesus, and we would love to have you partner with us. Feel free to share these messages with your family and friends. And also, if you'd like to donate to the ministry, go to redemptiondb.com. God bless you.